0: You're listening to the Haney Company Financial Guy Show. No nonsense, just a crazy mix of life, business, the funny. And of course, we're going to talk about your money. But just sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride. What could go wrong? All right, welcome to another episode of the Haney Company Financial Guy Show. I am your host, financial guru, extraordinaire Brian Haney, but I have somebody even more financially savvy with me, which is probably true for the vast majority of people that are on this show. My wonderful friend and I'm a partner in crime, right? Maybe, Kristen sure, Topper. Yeah. Not necessarily crimes against humanity, but we have a little bit of fun. you know. Thanks for coming on, Kristen. Really excited to have you with every show. Usually the first four questions are the most heady, the hardest to deal with. So I get them out of the way at the beginning. So are you ready? We're going to dive right in. Yes. Awesome. So. What is the number one place that you want to visit on your bucket list?
1: So I would say Italy um, because my husband and I were supposed to get uh, married there in 2020 and we were going to do a destination wedding there. And obviously because of COVID, that did not happen. (laughs) So it's always been something that I just want to go back to and and see.
0: So in any particular parts of Italy?
1: No, just all over. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's so many destinations in Italy to see. Um, yeah. And I, 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 having been many, many, many years ago, but I never got to do uh, Venice when I was there. And so that's still like, you know, I got to come back. So,
1: yeah, I've never been to Italy ever. Um, so I definitely want to see Venice. I want to see Rome. I want to see Sicily. I want to see all of it. But yeah, that's that's where I would go.
0: Awesome. What food will you not eat under any circumstances, including penalty of death? <laughs> oh, well. I know the stakes just got raised.
1: Yeah, I, I was going to say, ignore, <laughs> you know, I I don't think that I'm an unadventurous eater, but um when I was thinking about this, like, I think anything that still has a head on it when it's served, <laughs> um, yes. like, yeah, like, you know, how Branzino served for the head you know, in in its entirety. Um, and not that I'm opposed to eating fish, but just seeing the head still attached (laughs) just makes my stomach turn. Um, so I'd say anything. Yeah. That's served in its entire body and (laughs) form.
0: I'm a kindred spirit with that. I remember very early. I, I think I maybe, maybe not that early. I was in high school and I, and I went to a Thai restaurant in Ordered something that was listed as a special. It said it was a fish, and I clearly did not understand that they're special. That's how it was served, and when I received it, I was like, "Oh no, this is not happening!"
1: Oh, like, I don't,
0: I don't even care how good this thing tastes. I can't get past the fact that it's just—it looks like literally you just pulled it out of the Potomac River. I'm not. I can't. I can't do this. And uh, they looked at me funny, but anyway. So, <laughs> all right, that's a good one. I like that. And speaking, uh, we'll continue in the food theme for this third one. If you could have dinner with any famous person and we say alive or dead we're bringing somebody back from the dead if if that's what it takes who would you want to have a meal with
1: i mean there's a lot of famous people out there that i'm sure would be um, a wonderful dinner companion but um if i were to have dinner with anybody and this isn't a famous person it would probably be my uncle he's alive um, but i very rarely see him and he's always just been a really entertaining person for me i you know i've always looked forward to hearing the stories that he you know, tell and all that. So that, I know he's not famous, but that would be the person that I would want to have dinner with. Cause I very rarely see him.
0: I love that answer. That's great. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it's, it's, you know, whose brain do you want to pick and unfold and unpack and actually yeah. do that over the course of eating and talking? It's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, so now I am curious though, what does he do or, you know, what are some of the exciting things in his life that, that he has stories about?
1: Well, so he's retired now, but, um, I just really liked listening to the stories that he would talk about with my family, like my dad when he was growing up, my grandparents, like their lives growing up. That's really what I enjoyed listening to.
0: I connect with that. It's interesting. I feel like that was part of what excited me as I was going on this journey of of getting like my Irish citizenship was realizing that that my grandparent on my my so my mom's father who was born in Ireland was one of nine kids that came over through Ellis Island. And yet we literally growing up and, and and up until my adult life, I was totally unaware that this this gigantic part of my family existed and lived in the US. Just, yeah, like, you know, all mm-hmm. of the fascinating stories of literally anything about just life and with all these people that you knew and now people that you didn't know, that just, yeah. I'm still kind of excited about it. So yeah, I, I, I think that that has... A lot of resonance and and we should all think that way, right? We should all have meals with maybe, you know, extended family members, especially especially if they've got dirt on people that we do like and care exactly. about and see on a regular basis. Cause that's <laughs> those are always the best. So yeah, yes. absolutely. Which is why you're not not ever allowed to have more meals with my own brother. Cause um, yeah, he's sworn to secrecy <laughs> he so on some stuff. He does. <laughs> yeah. He he and I are definitely notorious. So there's there's that. All right. Besides this one, of course, what other podcasts? would you recommend to this audience that you like?
1: So I admit, I do listen to a lot of true crime podcasts. And one of my go-to podcasts to listen to is The Deck. And The Deck is um, a podcast that focuses on cold cases. So Mm -hmm. uh, they'll retell those stories. They work with family members and law enforcement, and they've actually worked with the um, Center for Missing and Exploited Children to try to get their listeners to call in and, you know, If they know anything, provide it to try to help solve those cases. I believe they've been pretty successful in getting the outreach, you know, and all that. So I just really respect what they do, and I think it's nice that they're trying to bring closure to victims' families and things like that.
0: That's awesome. I wonder. I wonder where they got the name, the deck.
1: I can tell you now. I don't know, you know, the full extent of this, but I believe it was back in the early two thousands. I'm not sure if it was Florida or there were maybe Connecticut, there was a couple of states that were um, taking cold cases and putting them on playing deck cards and distributing them through the prison system okay. in hopes of getting um, inmates to talk, you know, and try to get, you know, information out that way. So that's what, where they got it from is that system that was implemented, which actually turned out to be very helpful in solving cold cases.
0: That's fascinating. I presumed it had something to do with playing cards. So yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yes. All right. Well, that's a, that's a good, great recommendation. So now we got to hear more about you and all of the wonders and the mysteries that make up Kristen Tockett. And you and I do. We, we do have a, a pretty extensive professional uh, relationship and you guys do some awesome and amazing things. So tell tell us about yourself, what you do, why you get up out of bed every day with a smile.
1: Okay. So, um, you know, I work at Preferred Pension Planning Corporation. We're a third-party administration firm, TPA. Uh, we administer various types of retirement plans, such as traditional defined benefit, cash balance, 401k, profit sharing, 403ds, and 457 plans. We assist sponsors with the initial setup of the retirement plan, um, the design. We also handle the ongoing compliance testing, the preparations of the form five thousand five hundred and any attachments. We also maintain plan documents, ensure they're up to date with all legal uh, requirements. And then we also assist participants with education meetings, um, enrollment, and also, you know, when it comes time, taking distributions. So I've been there since 2016. I started there as a pension administrator, and I have since transitioned to our business development department, where I primarily assist with setting up the new plans and taking over existing ones. With that, we also evaluate, you know, if if it's takeover, um, what the plan currently has and if there's any room for improvement.
0: From there. All things retirement, which which we hey. love about, we love about preferred pension and certainly your role in in that space. What would you say? Either is your area of expertise or, or the thing that you like the most about what you do specifically?
1: So, as far as area of expertise, I would say that I work primarily with the four hundred one k like defined contribution plans. So the four hundred one k profit sharing, and then also I have quite a bit of experience with the non government four hundred fifty seven b plans. I really like analyzing what you know is already in a plan document where there could be room for improvement how you can benefit certain groups of employees you know whatever fits the needs of the employer and their participants um that's what i would say i primarily enjoy doing also i enjoy reconciling the accounts i don't know i just really enjoy the you know investigating what's happened
0: (laughs) (laughs) somebody has to right you know yeah (laughs) And you're right. I mean, and, and I think that that's part of what you were just sharing is why, you know, you and I have uh, such synchronicity as we approach the marketplace and working with you and in uh, you you have an enthusiasm for that plan design that, you know, really the concept of that there is a right way to design a plan that fits specifically to your organization, to your employees, that it's not this boiler plated dynamics that everybody gets the blue pill and that's what you got mm-hmm. and that's i think again also part of of you know the value proposition at preferred pension is to really you know invest in understanding each unique organization and making sure that the retirement plan does what it's supposed to do but it's that extension of the value proposition for why these employees wanted to work there to begin with
1: Exactly. And it's like you said, every organization or company, they all have different needs and goals. I mean, primarily the same goals to save for retirement, but they have different needs to get there. And um, one thing that we really take pride in doing is analyzing that for each individual client and not giving them some cookie cutter plan that matches every other one. And, you know, I think that's really
0: important. You know, and that's that collaborative process as well that I I think is also fun when you're talking Mm -hmm. to. You know, a company or an executive, and you're you're really just going through. Well, do you realize that you have all these options? And so, therefore, we need to figure out like what's what's the best way for us to cut this cake for you. You know, and if we go this direction, this is what the result would be. But if we do it this way, maybe that's you know. And 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 I think that that's just a lot of fun. That you know, perhaps a lot of the people that are that are in that conversation and that consideration, they just don't realize. Oh, I I didn't know I could move all these variables around to my benefit. Mm So let's talk about retirement plans at a high level. What would you say are some of the important things for anyone that either is thinking about starting a plan if they haven't or has a retirement plan that really help to create an optimal retirement plan experience? So I think
1: whether you have a plan or you're just starting one up, I think one of the most important things to first look at is your plan design. Uh, Make sure that it is meeting those needs. You know, you want to look at eligibility. Do you want to allow your staff to come in immediately? Or maybe you have high turnover and you want to add some sort of service requirement in there so you're not bringing people in in the plan and have these constant, you know, constant turnover. So I definitely think you want to look at the plan design eligibility, um, see if you want to make an employer matching contribution to help retain employees, encourage them to participate, maybe profit sharing or employer discretionary contributions, maybe you want to have a vesting schedule on those so these are all plan provisions that you should really be considering when you're starting a plan and also when you have one, just reevaluating every so often if what you have in your plan is really working for you. You know, aside from that, you want to make sure that you're picking a good investment provider, one that has reasonable fees, offers a diverse line of investments. Um, Ideally, it would be a provider that promotes participant engagement. You know, there are several providers out there that have excellent participant websites. You know, you can go on, you can use their retirement plan calculators. You can, I think they even have calculators for um, figuring out what your paycheck would be as you adjust your pre-tax contributions, things like that. And I feel like that really comes in handy for participants. And then even ongoing, you know, you want to make sure you're providing education to your employees. You want to make sure that they understand the plan and they're making informed decisions. And when you give them access to industry professionals in the field, like advisors and TPAs, I think that's a huge benefit for them.
0: All of these elements are so important. And especially mm-hmm. when they are channeling those conversations through that experience filter, mm-hmm. because I think you've seen it certainly more than than we have, given the number of plans that, that you all handle, that not every experience is the same. You know, there are certainly plans that uh, you just look at the data of the, you know, either the percentage that employees are contributing might, you know, tell one story or maybe it's the percentage of people that are actually participating at all versus ones that aren't. Right. That there's a mm-hmm. lot of stories that show up in plans and, and how they are being received that I think it's hard for employers to necessarily see what those stories are telling them about how good the plan is. Sometimes you just kind of say, well, you know, my duty is to just provide this plan and design it as well as we can so that we can afford it. You know, just giving somebody something doesn't necessarily mean that they receive it the way that maybe you intend for it to be experienced. So I think that that's really important leads me to the other question. What What common gaps or maybe deficiencies do you find pop up most often, especially as you're going through these kind of plan assessments, or maybe if you're taking over a plan, what are you looking for?
1: So I would say there's probably two major ones that come to mind. When taking over a plan, I would say maybe poor plan design when it was originally set up. You know, I can think of an instance right now where we were doing a takeover and a plan was written to have a fixed profit share. There was no Mm. discretion. And it's unfortunate because, you know, if the company is experiencing some sort of financial hardship, it's written in your document, you will make that contribution. You know, there's no if, and, or but about it, (laughs) which is unfortunate. You know, I mean, we look for stuff like that and see how we can improve it, you know, make the necessary amendments so that going forward, they have discretion every year in the amount and whether or not they can do it. Um, So there's things like that. And, you know, another uh, example I could think of is and this often comes up with um solo plans when it's just the owner only you'll notice that like if somebody's using a provider that maybe they provide the initial document um, and they're setting this up but they're not really consulting with the plan sponsor and le- letting them know like all the provisions they're just putting standard things in there and maybe for this one instance that I'm thinking of they had no service requirement it was an owner only plan so at that time when it was set up, that was perfectly fine. But then, you know, down the road, they hire an employee and they're not really thinking about the fact that they don't have a service requirement. Uh, By the time we got to it, that participant had been eligible for over a year, but was never informed of the plan. Nobody had reached out to communicate and educate them or the sponsor on this. And, you know, that can lead to costly corrections. You know, you have uh, missed deferral opportunities uh, that the employer has to make up with a corrective contribution. So, I would say it's a combination of poor plan design and the lack of communication and education.
0: Especially from what you've identified, both kind of going into it as well as what you look for when things might not be going well. It sounds to me like maybe a common thread part of the value proposition I know of preferred pension is really not just functionally doing the compliance work that you're Mm -hmm. supposed to do, but being an advocate for your clients and proactively talking to them on a, on a fairly consistent basis to empower them to make these decisions. And frankly, to know that there are these decisions that they are able and capable of making.
1: Exactly. You know, we really emphasize education, both, you know, internally with our staff and with sponsors and employees. And, you know, retirement plans can be very complex. You can't expect every employer to know the ins and outs of everything retirement plan related. And that's why we're here is to help um, facilitate that and support the sponsors so that they can focus
0: on their own business. Well, and I think that that's an important distinction and and certainly one that probably bears making reference to, right? There are a lot of TPAs out there. There are a lot of plan providers out there, and there's a lot of advisors out there, but it's certainly not a homogenized marketplace. But the areas where I think, hopefully, as organizations, executives, owners are thinking about these things, you really should be paying attention to the type of relationship, not just the cost of it, but what kind of an experience are you getting from the relationships that you already have? Because there is definitely, I think, a, a significant difference between. Those that just do the functional work that you're supposed to do, that you're paid to do, that keeps the plan compliant, and those that take a more proactive, more engaging, more service focused approach. And I also think you know you all have a unique proposition. You mentioned it, and and I want to uh, build off of this. But um, correct me if I'm wrong. I think that there's a a as a percentage of employees uh, preferred pension is a significant number that have a particular designation. If I'm not correct, right?
1: Yes. Um- so we have one of the largest percentage of ASPA credentialed employees, which is pretty amazing, really, you know. Absolutely. So we really, is. like I said before, we really emphasize education and we really encourage our employees to um, you know, further their knowledge in this industry. So we can be helpful to, to our clients.
0: And what designation specifically do do the vast majority of you all hold? I know there's a few of them.
1: Yeah. So um we have maybe 10 CPCs, which is Certified Pension Consultants. And we have a number of QPAs, QKAs. And then I myself have my TGPC. So I have, I'm a tax exempt and government plan consultant as well. And we also have several, uh, well, several. So we have two um, actuaries on staff also.
0: These designations are obviously very significant in terms of, you know, your, your increased expertise. But to have that much expertise at your disposal in the relationship that your clients have with you, I know it's it's an entire other experience that they're getting, right? You know, they're getting a really a, a well-developed bench mm-hmm. behind them in working with you all and, and in delivering a better experience. So let's talk about opportunities because a lot has changed, I think, in the retirement plan landscape, both in the industry, I think socially. There's just the market in general has transformed somewhat significantly. There's been a lot of fee compression. There's been enhancements to compliance disclosures, all kinds of stuff. But what opportunities out there exist that maybe we want people to be aware of as they're thinking about what could they do different, better? How can they create a better retirement experience for their employees?
1: I think the um, number one opportunity would be to review, if you have an existing plan, review the provisions that you have right now, reach out to a professional in the field, have them do a thorough analysis of what you have, maybe run some projections, see what how else you could be um, benefiting your employees or your executives or the owners of the company. I think that that's the biggest thing that a company should be doing is evaluating what they have right now and seeing how they can improve it. You know, I know we were going to talk a little bit on 457 plans, something that I want <laughs> to just chime in there. You know, Secure 2.0 was uh, recently passed in December. And in that, it's going to be requiring anybody that makes over 145000 in the prior year to do catch-up contributions in a qualified plan as Roth um, starting next year. Something I wanted to just say, this is an opportunity. Associations that are eligible for a 457B plan, those non-governmental plans don't even allow Roth. So you can still contribute on a pre-tax basis to those plans on top of what you're doing to a 401k. And if you're within three years of retirement age and your plan allows it, you can still do catch up to the 457b on a pre-tax basis. So that's something also to consider as far as an opportunity to take advantage
0: of. And I'm glad you plugged that in. And, and I'm going to make sure we, we do pull on that thread a little bit more. But I think what I was hearing you say was recognizing that there is still additional customization that can mm-hmm. be done right you know Absolutely. Just, just because you have a plan and you have a certain percentage or match or what have you maybe you know you need to look at it again maybe your revenues as an organization open up the door for you to do more with what's coming in you know a lot of times we just kind of think you know i'm doing enough cuz i got a good match and that's mm-hmm. it but there's there's certainly more ways people can take advantage of that and I, and i want to yeah let's get into executive compensation or really strategies that allow us to customize set-asides, deferrals, and just ways to maybe benefit people that are certainly higher income earners or maybe have a certain, you know, contract status with the organization itself Mm -hmm. that might have different savings needs beyond what a traditional 401k or or qualified plan might provide. Sure.
1: So, and just before, because I'll reference 457b, I'm slowly talking about non-governmental when I talk about these. So, With an eligible employer, a nonprofit organization that can sponsor a 457B plan, uh, it definitely allows executives to defer beyond what they can do in a 401k plan. So just using 2023 limits, you know, you can do 22,500 in deferrals to a 401k. If you're over age 50, you can do another 7,500. And those limits don't impact what you can do in a 457B plan at all. So you can do another 22,500 in the 457, and then- if you're within three years of retirement, you can potentially do an additional catch-up contribution to the 457B as high as another 22500 Now, whether or not you can take advantage of that depends on when you became eligible for the plan and if you've ever taken, there was ever a year that you didn't take advantage of contributing to it. So that's something that we could help you determine. But just definitely think that there is room for executives to be able to save and defer well above what they can do in a 401k plan, you know, and then also another thing that I've come across, as you know, there's a compensation limit every year. So in 2023, it's 330,000. So if you have a plan that let's say does a 3% safe harbor, and they're doing 3% to everybody, and that executive, let's say, earns $400,000. Well, technically, in the 401k plan, you can only get 3% up to 330,000. So that executive is kind of missing out on the 3%, you know, on that extra $70,000. One way to optimize the benefits for them would be to take that difference and put it into a 457B plan as an employer contribution. You know, so that's another way that I've seen these types of plans be utilized to help uh, benefit executives.
0: So let's build off of that, right? That's an area where, again, we don't even have to use the term executive compensation, but how can we look at the overall compensation structure that exists in an organization and recognize that you know what and, and I think we see this a lot certainly in the for profit arena right if you're an mm-hmm. owner maybe you're pulling down 500 600 thousand mm-hmm. you know a, a 401k plan is really not doing you a lot of help at all by comparison to all of what you're taking in versus all of what it allows you to put away so how can an organization really look at that step back and see the reality of you know how are people being compensated And is there a gap? Is there a need to create some kind of plan or strategy to help those that are doing well and making more save more? You know, 457 is one way. What other things have you worked with? What other types of plans have you brought to the table to kind of strategically allow people to defer more?
1: obviously I said that you could do the excess in the 457b there are times you may actually be able to do that extra three percent on that 70,000 as a profit sharing I know profit sharing is a weird term to use in a nonprofit world but uh, um, <laughs> we'll call it employer discretionary <laughs> so that's something that you know our company has reviewed plan documents to see how we can best design the plan so that you can do an additional discretionary contribution above and beyond what you're already doing in the 401k um, so that it's non-discriminatory, and that it passes all necessary testing. So one of the core plan designs that I have seen in the past is when a plan is written so that they have an employer discretionary contribution using a pro rata formula. That means that every person has to get the same percentage of pay. If you design it as a new comparability profit sharing, where you can put participants in their own group or their own classification, or even base it off of job title or something like that, it allows you so much more flexibility. When allocating contributions. I mean, yes, you are subject to testing. That's what we would look at for you. Make sure that you can do these types of contributions and still pass. So I think that even aside from putting in a 457B plan, something that should be looked at is to see if you're utilizing all of the components within your 401k plan
0: already. We've also worked on some things like 401As and cash balance plans. So I also think we we might want to scratch the surface on those as well.
1: Yeah, um, definitely. That That is another alternative. You know, And it's something that we could look at for each individual client to see if it's something that would work for them, you know, if they're looking to put significant more amount away for them and their um, employees. Aside from going through the 401k plan, seeing where else you can um, improve the contribution amounts going under that, you could also um, look at a 457f plan um, on top of a 457b. So let's say you're already maximizing what you can do in the 401k you already have a 457B plan in place and you're maximizing the contributions under that. Um, you could also do a 457F where there are no contribution limits under that plan. You know, the employer could put something aside for you in that. That's another additional way to defer taxation um, until you retire or you reach your resting date. Uh, so that's another type of plan to
0: consider. 457B and F, we do see these commonly connected together, certainly across the association landscape. Now they all... Allow for more deferrals, but I think it's also important to recognize how and and when people can take money out of them. Yes. So 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 let's let's be real clear on on the it, it's all great when we're putting stuff in. What does it look like to take money out? And let's start with the 457F because I think that's a quick and easy answer.
1: <laughs> yes. Um, so both actually 457 plans are vastly different than 401ks. So with yeah. the 401k plans, I'm sure you know, you can roll over to an IRA when you leave the company or the organization. You can roll it over to another qualified plan. You can take a cash distribution. With the 457F and the B, you can't roll those over to another qualified, or to a qualified plan or an IRA. Um, the 457F is generally going to be distributed a specific period after you retire or you reach your vesting date. And that would be defined in your document. So normally... It's, it's referred to as a golden handcuff plan, so you have to work a certain number of years or once you retire. I would say it's typically paid out like 60 to 90 days following that, and it's a cash payment.
0: There's no all, rollover. All, all at once, right? Can't spread it yes. out. It comes out. It is what it is.
1: You may be able to do it under installments, but I've never seen one written that way.
0: The majority of Fs that we've I know worked with uh, hands-on mm-hmm. uh, all come out in a single year, which Again, does it make that not a viable plan? It's just really important for anyone that's considering that to understand not just the part of how much you know an organization can put into it, maybe to even satisfy some kind of a contract requirement or obligation, uh-huh. but to then recognize you know if you're the person that at some point is going to get a payout, you know you want to be really good about planning for that you know and, and looking at you know hey this is the, all this amount of money is going to come to me it's going to be considered fully taxable. income.
1: Yeah. And then also with the 457B, uh, you do have a little bit more flexibility there. You still can't roll it over into an IRA or a qualified plan. But if you do leave one association and you go to work for another that sponsors a 457B and they both permit this, uh, you can potentially transfer it to the new 457B to avoid taxation. But essentially with both plans, once you have constructed receipt, the amounts are taxable to you. With the 457B, you can postpone receipt of the funds. So let's say your plan um, default payout date is 90 days after you leave employment. You can, subject to what's in the document, <laughs> elect to postpone up until you start taking your required minimum distributions. So there's that option. But they are pretty strict. I mean, they you are once you make an election, you're only allowed one additional change and you can't accelerate payment. So there's all these stricter rules <laughs> around it. Um, yeah. That are different from 401ks. And, you know, another thing that I think that participants aren't made, a, not that they're not made aware of it, I just don't know that they're understanding it when it's set up is that that these plans are subject to the association's creditors. They're an asset of the association, whereas a 401k plan is a protected benefit for the employee, you know, not necessarily subject to creditors. These are, I mean, not that you're going to lose all your money, <laughs> but you just have to keep that in mind but it's just handled differently.
0: It's an important point in distinction because that ties in exactly to what you were mentioning earlier, constructive receipt. Once you transfer ownership, that's considered constructive receipt, right? So even as you're taking the funds out, if you're trying to manage a distribution, you got to be really careful about how that distribution is set up and the structure of it and and again, that there is, you know, if you unless you want to pay the taxes all upfront, You know, there's going to be involvement with your organization so that they can they can do that, and you can you can manage that and receive it the way that you're you're intending for it to be received. And and I and I also want to you know you did mention a couple things in there that go back to that point: plan, document, design, and review. Right. So you mentioned again, it has to be written into the 457 agreement. Mm -hmm. Really making sure that that's designed the way that you want it to be. But you also mentioned, I, I think that this is really important, and I know we see this quite a bit, the option to roll a 457 from one plan to another. But correct me if I'm wrong, that has to be written into the other 457s plan. It has to be able to allow that to happen, correct? correct? Yeah.
1: Yes. It has to be allowed from both the plan they're leaving and <laughs> trying to move it from and the receiving.
0: So, so just because there's another 457 out there where you're going doesn't mean you might be able to do it. So so it is. All of these things are really important to, to know going into them and also to recognize that, oh, by the way, that is an option that can be materially impactful. So let's hypothetically say you're an association that's trying to optimize retirement for your employees. What kind of approach have you found to be an industry best practice?
1: So I would say education is the best place to start. You know, ongoing education, uh, about contribution limits that you can do, the investment options in the plan, make sure that it's an easy to understand language. (laughs) You know, you don't wanna complicate things and confuse your employees. Another thing is consider implementing an employer match program to try to get employee, you know, incentivize employees to contribute themselves. Another option maybe would be to consider automatic enrollment. You know, that has been proven time and time again to encourage participation, takes um, advantage of people's inertia. But yeah, it encourages employees to start saving early. You can add an auto escalation feature in there so that every year is increasing by a percentage. You know, and then conduct regular plan reviews. You know, you want to make sure that you're regularly um, reviewing your your providers, making sure that you have the best of the best out there.
0: So you mentioned two things, and I want to I want to pull on both threads. I think the okay. the education part. Uh, and this is, again, you know, what we see from preferred pensions so much, especially in our partnership and working with you all, is that, you know, education isn't a once or twice a year thing, right? It's, it's a year-round thing. And, and I think that's probably an area where a lot of organizations might have a bigger gap. Maybe it's not so much the plan document itself. It's just the fact that they are not embracing the employees enough and helping them really understand and better connect to the plan in its entirety. You mm-hmm. know, uh, we always we, we always like to say a, a benefit isn't a benefit unless your employees understand it and can use it effectively, right? Yes. <laughs> and I think exactly. the other thing that you mentioned in that same vein is the data that the plan, so that each plan's data tells a story. Mm-hmm. Right. So paying attention to pers- participation percentages and just kind of all of the things that, you know, hey, if you just don't assume anything's right or wrong, but what data sets can tell you, you know, hey, your average deferral percentage is 3%. Well, maybe your plan design is fine. Maybe just the need is to increase it and get everybody to get up to 8, 9, or 10 or something like that, right? But how mm-hmm. often do you think employers actually really take a look at that?
1: Yeah, probably not as often as they should. <laughs> <laughs> I do know some that are very on top of it. Actually, quite a few. Um, They're constantly concerned with trying to get their employees educated and, you know, contributing to the plan and knowing the benefits of it and what's available to them. So there are several out there that, you know, that I work with directly that are very much on top of it. But then you see others that have very low participation and, you know, there could be things that they could do, you know, bringing in investment advisors or, you know, someone like our firm to um, help encourage and educate
0: employees. That's a great point, right? It's oftentimes really looking at who do you work with? Because I think sometimes, you know, an employer or an HR professional or an executive probably doesn't feel like they're the best expert. And and it's almost a burden to try to figure out how do I go about this? But that's not probably their role. They should, you know, be working with with other parties that can be a good partner and invest in their employees' success like they are. Exactly.
1: Um, You know, (laughs) they're not um, necessarily experts in this field. They really should be relying Mm -hmm. on people who are, you know, and let us do that part for you.
0: Absolutely. And then I think you were you were also mentioning that as well, you know, looking at these these plan design components. And so that's beyond education, right, as a best practice Mm -hmm. and beyond looking and letting the data tell a story it's then going in and maybe realizing that, you know, like an organization, there's kind of a a, a life cycle, if you will, and a progression, you know, where you were 10 years ago, and where you are today might have changed. So maybe that means also your plan needs to change materially to to better represent you in your current format. And so let's talk about that, right? You know, we've mentioned some of these moving parts, but you know, just maybe having a mentality of going in and doing some benchmarking, both taking a look, the plan's grown. It used to be a million. Now it's seven. Uh You know, have we looked at how the funds have performed and, and have we benchmarked the fees, but also have we looked at, you know, the plan design component, employer contributions and all that kind of stuff? How frequently do you see people needing to do those types of reviews?
1: I would say maybe once a year. Really depends on the client. If there's significant changes, then probably once a year. If things are kind of going, you know, nothing's really changing, then maybe once every other year. But I would say they should be benchmarking their plan probably every two to three years. You know, just make sure that they're still with a provider that has reasonable fees, that there isn't something else out there that could benefit their employees and um, the associations or companies better. And then as far as changing... Plan provisions, you know, it really, it it depends on the client. So, I mean, let's say they don't have a safe harbor plan, so they're subject to ADP and ACP testing. That really should be looked at every year, you know. Should you be looking to implement a safe harbor? Is it in the budget? Would it be beneficial to do that? Do you have highly compensated employees that keep having to receive refunds that, you know, maybe you want to find a way around that to avoid it? That really should be looked at every year.
0: Yes, nothing like a failure and planned testing to to, to really <laughs> shine a light on things that you want to change, right?
1: Yes. <laughs>
0: yeah. Especially since uh, it's always looking back in time, and, and usually it's, hey, we're gonna we're either put money in or take money out, and uh, <laughs> not mm-hmm. when anybody expected, and certainly not the outcome people were hoping for. Yeah. So, any any other tips or tricks you think any organization, association, professional that you would you would advise?
1: You know, I would all I would say is just try to collaborate with uh, any professionals that you can in this industry and don't take it upon yourselves to learn every in and out of this is too complex. And that's why, you know, we're here to help.
0: Absolutely. And it changes all the time because legislators are bored. Does.
1: Yes. And they, and they don't have <laughs> enough
0: to do. So they got to figure something new out, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. What's the best way for someone to get a hold of you if they want to pick your brain further or, or connect with preferred pension?
1: You can reach me by my phone at 908-575-7575 or through email. And my email is Kristen, K-R-I-S-T-I-N at P-P-P-C dot C-O. Awesome.
0: Well, Kristen, this has been fantastic. Glad we could do this. And uh, I appreciate you coming on the show today. Thank you.
1: So thank you for having me.
0: The information provided in this podcast is not intended as specific tax or legal advice and may not be relied upon for purposes of avoiding any federal tax penalties. The Haney Company, its employees and representatives are not authorized to give tax or legal advice. Individuals are encouraged to seek advice from their own tax or legal counsel. Individuals involved in the estate planning process should work with an estate planning team, including their own personal, legal, or tax counsel. The information provided here does not constitute personal financial advice, but is meant as the conveyance of information for educational purposes only. All investing involves risk, including the risk of loss. Past performance is not indicatory of future returns. Guarantees are backed by the claims-paying ability of the insurer. Brian Heaney is a registered representative and an investment advisory representative of Dempsey Lord Smith, LLC. Dempsey Lord Smith, LLC is not affiliated with the Heaney Company. Securities offered through Dempsey Lord Smith, LLC, Membra FINRA Advisory services offered through Dempsey Lord Smith LLC, a U.S. SEC registered investment advisor.